You're listening to Get Real KC with Jen and Eric. Kansas City's consumer-facing real estate podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Get Real KC, where we are overflowing with a passion for all things real estate. I'm Eric Jurgensen. And I'm overflowing Jen Justice. <laughs> you are Can't over- get it out. I'm so bubbly. All right. Excellent. I am so glad that you are excited here because we are finishing up. This is episode three of three of our home buyer's journey from start to keys, where we're taking home buyers and potential home buyers through the basic process of buying their home. So we're very excited to be here and kind of finish up this process for you. Hopefully you've listened to episode one and two, where we talked about all kinds of really good things. We talked about choosing an agent. We talked about costs and mortgages in general. We talked location, about location, location. how to find your dream home and some of the important things that you might be considering. And then we kind of got about halfway through some of the decisions you're going to have to make in a typical residential contract here in Kansas City, right? We called that making an offer. So we talked about some of the decisions that you're going to have to make about making an offer. So we're going to jump right back in. And uh, just to quickly review, we talked a little bit about uh, of course, being prepared, hopefully getting a blank contract in advance and going over it with your real estate agent, a lawyer if necessary, uh, reviewing the seller's disclosure. Uh, we talked about checking into uh, whether or not there's an HOA and what covenants and restrictions they have. And then we finished up our last episode talking about money. Money, money, money. Absolutely. So just how much are we going to offer? We talked about earnest money. We talked about escalation clauses. There are still other decisions that need to be made on that contract, so let's see if we can kind of go through some of those. One of the decisions you're going to have to make is about inspections. Now, go ahead. You were about to jump in. I could tell. On page nine of the contract, we talk about inspections and inspection periods that the buyer may or may not choose to have in which they could potentially exit the contract if they found unacceptable conditions. And so in the contract, you're making a decision, am I doing inspections or am I not? And if I'm doing them, how much time after this contract is uh, in effect, so essentially this contract is, is accepted, how much time between that and how much time do I have to do the inspections? Now, if it that's the, the default in the contract is 10 days, but it can be changed. Yes. Now, we're going to talk about inspections a lot as soon as we're done with all of these decisions, so I don't want to jump into a ton of it now. Uh, but uh, you definitely need to decide on the con- by, by the time you're making an offer if you're going to do them. How many ha- days you might need. You Absolutely. might have already called inspection companies to find out. Maybe make it on your next day off because we'll tell you more about that here in just a few minutes. Uh, other things that you're going to make decisions on in that contract is um, if there are additional items, so kind of specialty items is what we might call it, that are going to be included or excluded. Some of this would come into play with some of your more non-standard um, uh, properties. For example, you just sold, uh, or you I think you still have on the market, don't you? Or did it go under contract, the, the horse property? It closes. It should have closed last week. Uh, it closes tomorrow morning, first thing. Okay. So, but I'm assuming in there, lots of things about barns and whatever. Chicken coops. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they asked for the mower. The mower didn't end up staying. We've got some gates. We've got some 
random stuff in barns, but yes, some things like that um, that can be included. But the uh, the seller can either tell you, hey, we're leaving those items, or the buyer can say, hey, I want those items left there. Sure. So that might be something that, that works in, in those scenarios. A as lot of times that would be covered items. in additional terms and conditions. Um, up there with your additional terms and conditions is also your home warranties, which are becoming more popular again these days. Yay. And our good friends, um, Matthew and Mark Emmerich, who were on our podcast just a few short episodes ago, can tell you all about those home warranties in details, all the different plans. But that's a decision that you need to make, whether you want one or you don't want one. And who's going to pay for that home warranty if you do want one and then who's going to arrange it absolutely and those are decisions you make that are identified in the contract right in in when you make the offer uh definitely go back and and listen to that uh episode about home warranties with uh, uh the sir emmerichs uh it was a great episode uh you are going to be talking a little bit about uh, closing costs. We mentioned that in money, whether or not the seller, you're going to ask the seller to pay some of your closing costs. Uh, you're going to pick a closing date. and Very important, isn't it? Well, I think one of the most important things to make sure that people understand is, it, because it's not intuitive, it, it doesn't make sense out of the gate. I would assume, and I assumed this when I was buying houses before I became a realtor, is, is that when I sign on the dotted line, I know that then money is being transferred in, in our area by the title company. I want my keys, and I assumed that was going to happen. But in the contract, there are two different concepts that you have to pick dates and times on, and that is closing, and that is when am I going to come to the closing table and sign uh, and, and allow the transfer of funds and et cetera. And the other is possession. And that's when I actually get access to the house. Let me give you a for example. Right now I have uh, uh, two houses under contract, but one we just were requested by the seller. We have it that we could take possession when we close. And the seller said, is there any chance you would allow us to keep possession until 6 p.m. the night we're closing because they are doing a double move, right? They are selling their house, moving into a brand new one the same day. So that was a request, which we can either uh, honor or say, no, we can't do that. In this case, we're being perfectly reasonable because my client's not moving that day. And I have a similar one with a buyer that I'm working with. And I learned something about the VA, too, that I think is a little bit newer provision. The VA will only allow a seller to stay in a house 60 days after closing unless there is a special exception. So in this case, um, we're closing in October, but they are letting the client stay there through the end of the year. He's selling a, a doctor's practice and needs to be able to stay there, but also wanted buyers to be able to take advantage of better interest rates because unfortunately they are going up. Well, unfortunately, whatever, however you want to look at that. But the interest right. rates are going up, so he wanted to market the home so that a buyer could get locked in on their interest rate. But then he is going to pay them $2,600 a month until he moves out of the house. Now, we had to ask for an exception, which is where I learned that the VA only allows 60, 60 days. days right? for this particular couple because they're coming in from somewhere else. So it's 
a little more complicated, but something I learned about that that I can pass on to our listeners. But in this case, they're just renting the house back and we signed an occupancy after closing agreement. And there you go. That's the possession part of that one. Right. So that's like the ultimate, like keep possession away from closing, which is, is when your sellers are going to sell it to you and then rent it back for a period of time. Which has been really popular. I've done that more in the last year than I've probably done in a long time. Um, there are, is in the next section in the contract, or maybe I, I don't think I have them chronologically anymore, or, uh, but, uh, there is a section in there about appraisals. Um, and the, I think the thing to note about appraisals is, uh, whether or not you're going to, uh, waive a gap or make a change in a gap. So, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about appraisals here in the next section. Uh, but that's certainly something that you can do in a contract. It actually was happening during the, the we'll call it the pandemic craziness, uh, maybe not so much. I call it the fire down the street. Fire down the street. It was like blazing, like reminding um, me of Back to the Future. You got fire blazing down the street. It's so hot. You will have to indicate whether or not the uh, this your offer is predicated on the sale of your existing home. A contingency. If, it, if it's contingent. Uh, you will also have to, on that contract, provide information about how you're going to buy the home financially. So you're going to have to provide information about your loan if you're getting a mortgage loan, which is the most common, uh, your, um, who it's with, uh, whether what it's type gonna, it is, what type it is, FHA, VA, conventional, jump, whatever, uh, whether you're going to be living in the home. It's, it's a variety of things. Uh, that you do around centered around how you're financing the purchase. And if you think about it, that's pretty reasonable. If I'm going to sell you, let's say, $350,000 home, I might want to know that you're qualified to buy it. Absolutely. And you can change your method of financing after, but it does have to be agreed upon by all parties. For example, this one I was just talking about that's a VA originally came to us as conventional and it was my seller's option to say, nope, you came to me as conventional. If you want to buy this home, you will buy it conventionally um, because that is what we contracted for. However, he is going to allow them to switch over to the VA. It does come with some advantages for them. So then we can sign an amendment um, just saying that we're all agreeing to this uh, post-original contract. Absolutely. Um, and then the last thing that I will mention is that you'll want to put an offer expiration down. Uh, this offer is good until 10 p.m. on Tuesday or whatever it is that you and your agent collectively choose. And, and all of these things uh, will be part of the strategy that you utilize to make your best offer, but also to uh, get what you want. So, for example, um, you know, we talked about in the previous episode, putting more earnest money down might suggest a stronger offer or a better cash position that you want to represent. Um, doing inspections quickly as opposed to slowly would be in the benefit of the seller. So it might make that offer a little more tasty to the seller. Um, so there's uh, you have a very, very strong offer, uh, but you don't want them to take that out and sort of shop it to see if they can get somebody else to do a better offer. So you might tighten that expiration window. Hey, you've only got you know 24 hours or 12 hours. Uh, now, there's, there's pluses and minuses, risks and rewards for all these behaviors, but they are part of your negotiation strategy that you'll work on as you make these decisions filling out the contract. So that's how you make an offer. Yep. Once you make an offer... And it's accepted, I get my house, right? 
it's time to dig into those inspections and scheduling and some of that stuff if we're going down that path. All right. So let's talk about those because the next two biggest common things that happen uh, in the period between when the offer is accepted and the house closes and a standard, this can be any amount of time. I think the tightest it can typically be on a cash offer. You might be able to get it done in a week. Two weeks might be a little more common. Ten days. Got to get um, a title policy and get it through title. Usually it's ten days. Right. But uh, but a common one with a lender involved is about 30 days. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a pretty common time. They like it if they can even have 45. But 30 is pretty customary and people are very um, good at working on a 30-day timeline typically. And during that, there's two big things. There's actually three, but two that you'll sort of be really aware of. Well, you might be aware of the third as well. Uh, but the two big things I'm talking about are inspections and appraisals. And now your lender will not typically order an appraisal until after the inspection process is complete. Because you might have to give them some money for that, first of all. Right. So let's talk about inspections. Uh, so when we say inspections, most people think of what we'd call a whole home or a general home inspection. And that's certainly where we'll start. And I recommend that on every home. Uh, and uh, there's even some brokerages out there that have documents they want you to sign saying, we recommend an inspection. Uh, I hate those documents. They're, they're anti, uh, they're, they're, well, anyway. Extra paper in the Extra transaction. Extra paper, that doesn't mean a whole lot. And we do actually have a great podcast with Brandon Miller from APRO um, in our library of podcasts that digs really into what all a home inspector does. We'll go over it here a little bit, but if you want more information about that, you can always go back in the library of podcasts to APRO Home Inspections, Brandon Miller. Now you're trusted real estate professional should be able to recommend inspectors to you. Obviously, one of the ones we recommend is Brandon Miller with APRO or anybody on his team, but not all inspectors are the same, are they? Mm. What are the requirements for being an inspector in Kansas or Missouri? Would it shock you to know that I can hang a shingle tomorrow and call myself a home inspector? Right. We are, I like to kid a, a flashlight and a ladder and you're a home oh, inspector. I don't even know if you got to have that. I doubt you do. but it's, I mean, I think I can just show up with a notepad and walk through a house and call myself a home inspector and scratch it out. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure I got to do that. But if I want to give anything to the other party, I better scratch something out on that chicken sheet of paper. So... What you need to do is you need to make sure that your home inspector not only is a qualified professional. Well, how do I do that? They're 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 qualified in something I don't. Well, how do they? How what are some of the ways that we can tell whether a home inspector is qualified or not? There's some organizations out there. There aren't are there? absolutely some organizations. The NACHI is one, and you know Google reviews. Actually, if people have had bad experiences with home inspectors, they're typically really, really bad, which is why Kansas is pushing so hard for regulations as part of their legislative session. A lot more open to the, getting those regulations in Kansas. Missouri says they don't want to mess with it um, in the professional uh, division of registration. But there are some really bad ones out there, and people are not usually shy about telling you how bad they are. So not only will you get a recommendation from your real estate professional, but you can check Do them some out research. online. Yes. Um, and you want to make sure that you have somebody who is competent, educated, and then communicates well and provides clarity. Most inspection reports we see run from 25 to 40 pages long, although a lot of that is educational materials and sort of some stock comments about various systems. What you're looking for, though, is the major systems that they typically look at. 
And that's going to be things like your foundation, your roof and gutters, your HVAC. They're going to check plugs. They're going to make sure windows are operable. They're going to do visual inspection for look for Mars and dings and dents and scratches. Um, all of those things. Uh, um, and that inspection needs to happen in the inspection period that we just talked about that you've identified in your contract. And you as Mr. Buyer are, or Mrs. Buyer or whoever, cat buyer, I don't know, is going to pay for this home inspection. Oh, I'm cracking Eric up here. Um, so, you know, there's lots of, we, we mentioned earlier, there's lots of different inspections. So you get your base home inspection, it's probably around $500. And then you can have add-ons to that home inspection, and whether by, you've got some sewer add-ons. Well, or, let's, let's break them down a little bit. So sewer scoping is a very common add-on. And particularly for older homes, homes that are in well-treated or hilly areas, I really recommend them. What Especially happens, older, too. Yeah, because you are responsible as a homeowner typically, in, and I think, I think in every city in our metro, but I don't know for sure, so don't quote me on it. But you are responsible for the sewer line between your house and the main sewer line that this city is maintaining or county. Mm -hmm. Um and, and that means uh, if there's a problem, that means excavation, that, you know, so that can get pricey. So for the cost of, I don't know, 150, 200 bucks tops, I think, to have a professional do a scope, essentially send a camera down there, take film, and then give you a report of its status and what uh, any recommended repairs would be, uh, I think is, is, is well worth that uh, time and, and, and effort and money and comfort. And if this is a home that, you know, you have uh, the 60s, 50s home and you're concerned about the infrastructure of the home, including the sewer, we actually have that on a podcast, too. Brian Wathen with Red Sea does a whole detailed thing, including some potential sewer type of insurance that you can have. So check yeah, that out if this absolutely. is a type of home that you're looking at and you're listening to this and you get into this process and you're like, oh, this backyard has really big trees. And I remember Jen and Eric talking about that. Brian Watham with Red Sea can give you more details, and it's in our library of podcasts as well. And and the people that we're mentioning and their companies are certainly ones that we recommend, but we want you to listen to the podcast not because we think they're the greatest companies. We like them a lot. They are great companies, but because they give you some fantastic information so you know. Yes, you can certainly yeah. use this information and interview these companies just like you do your realtor and just take that data and information and use it to build your knowledge base to take care of your largest financial asset your home. Other inspections that you may be interested in doing are radon inspections. Termites. Wood destroying insects, termites and, and carpenter ants. that may be required ants. by your lender. That's right. It may or may not be, but you got to check it out and it's a great one. It's not very expensive um, to add on because if those little devils get in the wood, boy, uh, I had a, a big house, a big client. We were going to list it in May. Found all these nasty termites, and we didn't go to market until August. Right, because they needed to do probably repairs Sister to say nothing. Some joints, if, rip out some walls. They really yeah. got in there and did a number. Now, that's not common. That is actually the worst one I've ever seen before. But just to tell you, it's an important one. Okay, we might also do chimney inspections. We might do foundation inspections. We might have somebody who specializes in roofs come out and do those inspections. And by the way, there is an upcoming podcast with JR and Company, and it's fascinating to learn a lot about roofs. So we recommend that you uh, uh, keep an eye out for that one coming. They're great. They're also going to come and do another one on solar energy for us. Because boy, they do that's that as becoming well. big. So yeah. you could even maybe if the house has solar panels, I bet you that. 
that's something you might want to check out and ask the seller for their utility bills and do some different things on that. So that could actually be an inspection now that's a a coming trend. So you have all of these potential inspections that you have to decide whether you're going to do, and then they're all going to have to get done in that inspection period. So you're going to need to make sure that you and your agent who's going to help you arrange all of that uh, are on top of it. This is going to be cash out of your pocket to pay for these inspections. Once you're past the inspection period, if there's been some renegotiation, so typically, unless you've waived these rights, based on what you find in the inspections, if you find conditions that are unacceptable, you can, in fact, say, hey, look, I would like to renegotiate. Maybe I'd like you to fix these four things. Maybe I just want you to give me $1,000 and I'll fix them myself. Or maybe I need to walk away because this is a much larger problem than I thought it was going to be. Or maybe I just ask you for um, a little bit of money towards closing costs or money off the purchase price. Lots of different negotiation options if you haven't waived those in your initial contract. So many. And one more thing I want to add on inspections real quick. As the buyer, if you are getting an inspection, I would recommend that you be there the last half an hour of that inspection. Just get familiar with the home. This is a great time to measure the rooms again. Think about what furniture you're going to have. Look at the blinds if you forgot it, because frequently we've only been through the home one other time um, when we're at this point, maybe twice, maybe if we had the opportunity to go twice. But for the, for the recent times, it's been you've been in the home one of the time, made this offer in five minutes, and then, you know, here we are at the inspection, and we're glad we get to have one. But take this time to go back in the home and just really be in the home and then learn about what the inspector is telling you in that last half an hour. You don't have to stay there the whole two to three hours, um, but be there the last 30 minutes. And, and uh, just so you know, um, I don't agents aren't required to do this, but I would say most good agents are. I'll be there. Yeah. Right. Jen and I. And will I'm be letting there. the inspector in. Yeah, we're letting so. him, we're letting him in, but uh, we're there. We're we're keeping an eye out. We're making sure things are getting communicated to you. Although the inspectors we recommend are awesome at that. Uh, so your agent should be very involved in this process and help you understand anything that's not making sense to you. Absolutely. So what's that next thing? So once the inspections are done and you've done gone through your negotiation period if necessary, then your lender will order an appraisal. And what is an appraisal, really? Well, that's a good question. Because, no. I mean, we probably talk about appraisals, and I'm going to say, you know, some people know exactly what an appraisal is and what we're talking about, and right. other people are going, when the heck is that? I just had an inspection. Isn't that the same thing? No. Because I can tell you I, I've heard that a lot. Okay, so that's a, that's a great question. So an appraisal is... Um, where an independent disinterested, meaning they have no particular financial interest in the transaction or the value of the home, somebody who is trained to value homes, they are hired to come out and make an assessment of the value of that home. Now, why in the world would a lender care about that? Well, if I'm asking a lender to loan me somewhere around $300,000, they want to make sure that house is worth more than the $300,000 or at least, you know, whatever the right math is. They certainly don't want to loan me $300,000 on a house that's only worth 150. Nope. And sometimes they can have um, safety components to it. They can have different requirements. Um, you know, FHA, VA are government types of different loans. Different loan types will have, have different requirements. Layers yeah. of it. And depending on how much money you're putting down or whatever. Um, and that can come back to that inspection where we negotiate that out. But it absolutely is a piece of it where we're looking at the value. It's peace of mind for you. 
it's peace of mind for your lender. And it's just a whole part of the process that's sometimes easy and painless, but other times causes a little bit of heartache. Sure. So the you don't choose who that appraiser is. It's somebody that typically your mortgage lender has contracted a with. A pool. They that, have a yeah. pool and there's typically a random um, selection somehow from some bank of uh, appraisers that they have an appraisal management company do these sometimes and so a, a person uh, that is completely independent as Eric said earlier goes out and looks at this home and makes an assessment of value they've got a nice report um, that you will get a copy of and you'll sign some documentation with your lender about receiving a copy of that report so if that's um, something you haven't gotten make sure you're asking for it because that is absolutely something you should keep I frequently when I go to relist a home ask them for that appraisal um, when when they bought the home because it's got a lot of data in it. Now, the appraiser will only be on site at the house for a relatively short period of time, less than an hour usually. It depends on the size of the house, of course. Uh, but then they do a lot of other work outside. So once they've been to the house, you can expect probably a week or better before you can see that report. Here's the question, right? What happens when I'm buying a house for $350,000 and the appraisal comes in and says the house is only worth $345,000. We go back to the negotiating table or the um, buyer has agreed up front that they were going to gap that in case it did come in low. So that was one of the things that we talked about at the beginning of the episode that a decision you'll make on that contract when you're making an offer. And one of the things that was happening very happening very frequently during the pandemic fire sale, if you will, was that people were saying, look, if the appraisal comes in lower than what I've offered, I will pay the difference up to a certain amount. And that's what we're talking about when we say appraisal gap is, is that we'll cover a gap between the appraised value and what I've offered. Mm-hmm. If you haven't offered an appraisal gap or an appraisal waiver, then we go back to that negotiation table. And of course, your options are pretty simple, right? Either you pay the difference, the seller pays the difference, you combine and pay the difference, right? Split it somehow, or the deal breaks up. It's really about that simple. It is. So that appraisal happens, you get that information, the appraisal comes in fine, it's my $350,000 house, it appraised at $355,000, good. Um, and so now we finally get to closing, except for I do want to mention the third thing that's going on in that period between acceptance and closing, and that is underwriting. Oh, what and, is that? It's uh, under, under that Right, it's under. Let me tell you, they get under everything. And this is your- Under, over, in between, yeah, all through, the nitty gritty. Inside, outside. This is when the, the process that your mortgage lender is using to verify their assessment that they uh, you are qualified for them to lend you money. And so this is where they might be asking for a lot more documentation. They might be um, looking much deeper. I remember the first home my wife and I bought, we were sent questions from the uh, uh, underwriter about like deposits in our bank account. Mm-hmm. Where did this deposit come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we had to like especially if you get a lot of down payment money like really quickly you do have to explain that so so that's going on be prepared to provide more financial and be prepared to be under the microscope financially now that all happens behind the scenes there's actually times when that happens in automated process what's really strange is is that uh 
my house uh, went through an automated appraisal uh, process. The one and I'm I was in now. just thinking, we didn't say that some of yeah. those actually can go through a desktop appraisal process, mm-hmm. and then in that case, nobody goes to the home. Right, and and I didn't even have to pay an appraisal fee. And this is the my lender told me that happens in less than five percent of the cases. I was cases. going to say it is the exception, mm-hmm. not the rule, but it is possible. Uh, once all of that is done, the mortgage provider is going to give you those three beautiful words we love to hear, which is clear, clear to, to close. close. All right. So now we're at closing day, right? So we've come up to the day we're actually closing. That means we're going to the title company and we're going to sign a lot of documents. Well, hold it. Hang on a minute. Is that all there is to it? It, it sort of sort is. Of. You're going to have, before showing up in closing day, you're going to have two very important pieces of paper, one of which is mandated in the Truth in Lending, I think it's RESPA actually, uh, but one of the federal laws that says that you must have something called a closing disclosure from your lender at least three days prior to closing, and it's a five-page document that very clearly lays out all the things that are going on financially about the loan, about your payments, et cetera. You have to sign that and return it. And if that doesn't happen, you're not going to close. Truth in lending. Truth in lending. Yes. All right. Uh, The second thing that you're going to get, and you're going to get this from the title companies, you're going to get something called a settlement statement. And what that does is it shows all the money – where it's going, what fees you're paying, what's getting credited and debited to the seller and the buyer. And ultimately, as a buyer, it's going to have the amount of cash that you need to bring to the closing table. Now, I use the word cash a little facetiously because don't bring in stacks of Benjamins. What? I can't bring in my brown bag of cash? No, no quarters, no nickels, no dimes. You have to bring certified funds. And so I tell most of my clients, depending on when that closing appointment is, is just swing by the bank on the way there and pick up a cashier's check or you can have the wire transfer be very careful with those wires make sure you pick up the phone and call the title company to get those instructions we don't want these emailed around wire fraud is a serious issue so that is why eric and i say pick up that paper check on the way if you can um it's one of those cases where paper is still good in our opinion we like a just that cashier's check that we hold in our hand and we fork it over to the title company when we get in there. Title Company is doing a lot of really cool things for you, but one of the best things that they do for you is is they manage all the money. You don't have to worry about uh, the the lender coordinates with them to transfer money to them and they transfer it to the seller. They take your check, they make sure the money is transferred. So if you're always wondering like, well, how does this happen? How do I give somebody $350,000? The wonderful people at Title Companies in our area, they take care of that. They get everything together. They put it out where it belongs and they fund these transactions and then they record them at the courthouse so that everything is official, official, official. That's right. They record it at the county level, which is where real estate is recorded in our country. Now, when you show up, you're going to end up having this massive stack of papers that you're going to sign, particularly if you have a mortgage involved. If you're buying cash, the stack is, a, is much thinner. There's going to be a lot of documents from your lender. There's going to be some documents that are redundant. You're going to have to sign in a, you know, your name legally. And um, it's, it's pretty overwhelming, particularly if you want to read them all. Uh, we've run into a few clients. I've had a client who said they're going to read them all in about halfway through sort of the whole real estate process. They gave up and they said, no, I've learned to trust you. But um, 
if these are documents that you want to read, you need to let people know beforehand and they can send you a blank set, probably electronically, and you can have a chance to read them. You cannot, at the closing table, sit down and read all of those documents. It will take you hours and hours and hours. Well, you can, but it might end up delaying things. For example, I just had one that apparently took three hours. Um, didn't matter what we said in the beginning or they didn't listen to our podcast, Eric. And uh, three hours later, the remote notary was on her way with the documents. So... Um, it can happen, unfortunately, and we do our best to tell well, you just I, like we are now. Hey, I know please. title closers might might say, okay, you read and I'll reschedule you an appointment for this afternoon. Here's it, the it caused a have delay it, yeah, and it absolutely. caused it not to go out on time. And so now it's uh, we just talked about a little Funding earlier. It's, later, it's, yeah. it's actually closing a day later. It, so, it threw it off because it was a, a situation where we're um, remote notary situation. But so. what you will get even if you're not reading them, is with a good title closer. And again, this is typically something like, for example, um, I know I use the same title closer. Uh, it's actually the same one that Jen recommends. And pretty much you have to have a, a pretty strong relationship. Otherwise, I'm going to say, no, we're going to use mine because I know she closes on time. I know she communicates well. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and the fees are certainly reasonable. And usually this is something that takes one or less hours. Right. And um, so, so it's, it's very customary that this takes one or less hours. You've got your ID, they're notarizing documents, and then they're giving you a copy in your preferred method when you're walking out the door, whether that's in a folder, paper documents, um, used to be a CD, but now I think it's a USB. Um, and then they can email you zip files now as well, I think. Right. They email them. One of the things that you will get, though, is you will get an explanation of the nature of the document you're signing. And they can do that document, but a good closer can do that document by document within that time frame. Yes. And so this document says this. This is why we're signing it. This document is from your lender, and this is saying that you will repay. This document says you'll keep insurance on the property forever right, and ever you, and ever, or we will, insurance. and it'll be really expensive. Right. And, and so they'll walk you through that. So don't feel like you have to go in blind and just sign a bunch of documents that aren't being explained to you. But again, sitting down and reading them is a different. Uh, yeah, a different and it's okay beast. if you want to do that. Just please make provisions so that we're not delaying closing for a day or two because of a, a three-hour. So now you period. mentioned this, but I want to stress it because it can cause problems. So it should be pretty obvious to you at this point on closing day that you will show up. It'll take approximately an hour, and you will need certified funds in an amount that has been already provided to you in a settlement statement from the title company. Bring your legal ID. That's important. And we've had that happen where people didn't pay attention to that and they've had to run home and closing appointments have to get delayed because, of course, they've got somebody else coming in after you. And if that happens, that could delay the entire deal. And that yeah, they've got to know legally that you are who you are and that is required to notarize documents, a copy of your license, just to certify all of that. Now, when you do that, um, who's going to be there with you? Um, your realtor can be there with you. Right. Who else might be there with you? Your loan officer might be there with you. Those would be the two common ones, right? Some people have uh, legal counsel involved. Their lawyer might be there. Um, should I be bringing, like, my mom and my sister-in-law, the kids? I would think that dinner after with them is a better idea to celebrate. Yeah. And so this is... Leave the baby in the car. <laughs> what? No, don't not, leave the baby in the car. Not if it's hot. Or not if you don't have a babysitter, but... Um, right. Leave. I guess there was kind of a figure of speech there that was, didn't come out quite right. Right. Now, leave the baby with the babysitter if you can. 
right? I mean, I've seen people who've had, you know. And we understand necessity of that. Yeah. So you totally can can bring them, but it's definitely going to cause a little hiccup in your signing well, of all your serious documents if you have your um, five kids running around the uh, title company. And uh, I might. hate I hate to mention this because I hate to set the expectation, but sometimes I've been the babysitter. Oh, okay. So, yeah, been bouncing the baby on my knee while mom and dad are signing documents. There you go. So, so anyway. Um, I've babysat dogs before during closings. That has happened to me more than once. Really? That's, yes. Wow, yep. that's interesting. Yep. The dog sitter. So at that point, now you've closed, you get the house, right? As soon as it funds. Mm, always? Well, could be that possession date we talked about. Absolutely. So depends on what you agreed to back when we talked about closing and possession. Right. And when it funds, which would be a common thing that I write in contracts about when possession is, I'll write at funding, is not necessarily when it hits their bank account. It's when the title company has confirmed that your check is there and the money is there from the mortgage company. That is funding. A lot of agents don't understand that. So make sure that your agent is savvy if this is really important to you that you walk out of that room with the keys to your house. Yep. Just have some real clear understandings. That way nobody gets mad and everybody's got the proper expectations going into this because we know that this is a stressful process and we simplify this frequently, but we do understand that this is emotional, this is stressful, and this is hard. And that's why we're here and giving you this podcast from Start to Keys to try and take a little bit of the mystery out of this whole thing. Absolutely. So if you, this is the third of a three-part series, if you listen to all three, there's a lot of steps. You've been drinking from the fire hose for three different podcasts to say, here's all the things that I need to think about. Here's all the decisions I need to make. But you finally got down to it. We're at the end of our last episode. I'm done with you, touch number 400 in the real estate transaction because I think it's about 400 moving parts now. That's right. So you... Whatever your possession scenario is, if it's at funding, there's a good chance right there at the table that you've everything's been funded and you get the keys to your new home. Congratulations! There you are. We started way back at, hmm, how do I choose a realtor? And we ended up at, here are your keys. Jingle, jingle, jingle. So that's it. That's the final segment of our home buyer's journey from start to keys. Hey, Eric. Yes, ma'am. Let's drop our contact info for our listeners. We don't do that all that often, and I don't remember the last time we did, and it's been a minute. So absolutely, tell us how they can get a hold of you, so, sir. I am Eric Jurgensen, and you can get a hold of me by emailing me at eric, E-R-I-K, at dreamhomesbygen.com. Or you can call or text me at 816-301-4121. And I'm Jen with Dream Homes by Jen. I am J-E-N at dreamhomesbygen.com. Or I am 816-405-2439. All right, we're at the end of the episode. It's been another great episode. A pleasure of doing it with you, Jen. We hope you guys enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time. You have been listening to Get Real KC with Eric Jurgensen and Jen Justice. For more information or to contact our hosts, visit us at dreamhomesbygen.com where you can find more episodes exploring real estate as it matters to you.